From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Learn more about gig speed internet or other popular plans. With Xfinity, you'll enjoy faster downloads and a better streaming experience. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. And Link T000 left a podcast review and used it as an opportunity to talk about MyPillow. Here's what they said. What's up, Darren? Thank you so much for keeping me entertained with these awesome stories that you tell so well. I recently got a MyPillow and I love it. I'm a Twitch streamer with a full-time job and it's usually hard for me to sleep and I wake up a lot when I try to sleep. Because of you, I decided to try a MyPillow and I slept so well and uninterrupted that I decided to let you and the amazing Weirdo family know that these MyPillows are amazing and worth trying for themselves. Keep up the good work. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or... Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. The creature seemed to have sort of an anti-gravity device on its person, perhaps ensconced within the suit, as it levitated from the ship to land on the snowy ground, which oddly did not melt under its feet. After a few moments, the being then reportedly began approaching the two lumberjacks, moving in graceful leaps that suggested its anti-gravity powers, as it was described as moving like someone walking on the moon, almost as if it were gracefully gliding along with each jump. Aloranta apparently stood his ground, and the thing then allegedly turned around to head back to its ship, with the lumberjack deciding to give chase for some reason. When it reached the strange object, it then purportedly began to levitate towards an opening, and Aloranta reached out to grab its leg. It's unclear what would have possessed him to try this, but he certainly regretted it, as the material of the thing's suit was claimed to be incredibly, unbearably hot, searing the lumberjack's hand and causing him to reel away in intense pain. The craft then ascended and disappeared into the night. The two witnesses would later claim that they had experienced disorientation and partial paralysis for an hour after the craft was gone, 
and the burns on Alorana's hands would take months to heal. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. This month is our anniversary month here at Weird Darkness, so instead of asking you to become a patron or promoting my uh, audiobooks, I'm using this entire month to raise funds for depression and suicide prevention, something very close to my heart since it's something that I suffer with myself. We all know someone who suffers depression or has thought about or even tried to commit suicide, but I want to bring hope to them, and I need your help to do that. A donation of any amount can help us reach our goal of raising $2,000 towards treatment and research for those who are in crisis. As of this recording, we're currently at $1,274, and we only have 12 days left to make up the rest of the difference to that $2,000 goal. So please, if you've been thinking about it, make a donation today. Go to WeirdDarkness.com and click on Battle the Darkness, or you can click the link in the show notes. Speaking of uh, the end of the month, Halloween itself, our very first Weird Darkness live scream is taking place October 31st live on YouTube. I'll be narrating the stories as I always do, but I'm going to be doing it in real time on camera, me outside so long as the weather holds out, and I won't have an opportunity to edit out any of my mistakes. You're going to hear everything, <laughs> and sometimes I can mess up pretty well. Other times I do pretty well, so we'll see, uh, we'll see how well I do for October 31st. By the way, today I received a really cool package in the mail. Stanley from NougaLeatherworks.com. That's Nuga, by the way, is N-O-O-G-A. NougaLeatherworks.com. He is a fan of the show. He's a, a, a weirdo and decided, just, just on a whim, on his own, that he wanted to do something special for the live scream, so he actually created a leather three-ring binder with the Weird Darkness logo on the front. It is so cool and uh, something I would never would have ordered on my own just because uh, I just I don't have the money for it, but it's so cool that he decided to do it. Uh, I took some photos if you want to check it out. You can find it at WeirdDarkness.com. Look in the Weird Web section. Uh, the weird web section is for stuff that's not video-related, stuff that's not the podcast, it's just anything else I find online. Uh, but it is really cool. You'll see the actual three-ring binder, and of course you'll see me using that uh, during the live stream on October 31st. But uh, Stanley, if you're listening, thank you so much. You did an amazing job. And again, if you want to uh, check out uh, Nuga Leatherworks, you can find them online at N-O-O-G-A-Leatherworks.com. NougaLeatherworks.com. Definitely worth a look. He's got some really great stuff there and incredibly reasonably priced as well. By the way, none of this is sponsored, okay? I'm just saying it out of the goodness of my heart because he gave out of the goodness of his heart. Very cool. 
So anyway, back to the live stream. If you want to uh, to follow that on the day that it happens, you can subscribe to the channel at youtube.com slash Marlerhouse. And uh, the actual live stream begins again October 31st, 5 p.m. Central Time. That's 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Mountain, and 3 p.m. Pacific. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. A hundred years ago, the Spanish influenza epidemic ripped through the United States, with fatalities reaching as high as 1,000 per week. We'll look at what happened. A young girl dealing with the trauma of her parents getting a divorce is traumatized even more when staying at a friend's house that appears to be haunted. Joan Crawford's daughter exposed her sadistic behavior, made famous by her portrayal in the movie Mommy Dearest. But how truthful were those accusations? A man starts to dig a swimming pool in his backyard and unearths numerous human corpses. The resulting story is so incredible it inspired the film Grave Secrets. It's the true story behind the Black Hope Horror. And along with sightings of Bigfoot, extraterrestrials, ghosts, and shadow people, there was a growing number of reports of entities which appear to be wearing futuristic armor or high-tech suits. Could these be interdimensional beings, extraterrestrial spacemen, time-traveling soldiers? What is it that people are seeing? We'll begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. One type of entity long reported in the world of the unexplained is that of the prowling phantom, skulking about in the shadows to terrify, battle, and even attack. There is one type of these shadowy individuals that warrants attention in that they seem to have been decked out in powered suits or armor of some type, very much like some sort of dark superhero. Here we're going to look at various unidentified individuals or entities that have skirted about the periphery of our understanding while donning fantastical suits of unknown design and even more inscrutable purpose. One very bizarre entity decked out in some sort of mysterious powered suit seems to have been obviously not human and quite literally out of this world, appearing in the country of Finland at a place called Kinala. The first sighting occurred on February 2, 1971, when two local women named Sanika Kuitanen and Mrs. Maninen had a strange encounter with what seems to have been some sort of alien being. The two were allegedly driving along a remote road in a region near Kaminki at around 8 p.m. when they saw a strange light pass over their vehicle, followed by the startling sight of a very bizarre creature that ran across the road in front of them. The entity was described as being around three feet in height and dressed in a thick, greenish-brown suit with a helmet, and the witnesses explained that it moved in a series of nimble leaps and bounds that almost seemed to defy gravity. An even more dramatic account would come just three days later, February 5, 1971, and involved two lumberjacks named Peter Alaranta and Esko Juhani Snek 
who saw what seems to have been the very same entity. The lumberjacks reported that they had witnessed a UFO descend into the trees, upon which it landed in a small clearing and disgorged a diminutive humanoid less than three feet tall that was dressed in some sort of green one-piece suit with a faceplate reminiscent of something a deep-sea diver would wear. The creature seemed to have some sort of anti-gravity device on its person, perhaps ensconced within the suit, as it levitated from the ship to land on the snowy ground, which oddly did not melt under its feet. After a few moments, the being then reportedly began approaching the two lumberjacks, moving in graceful leaps that suggested its anti-gravity powers, as it was described as moving like someone walking on the moon, almost as if it were gracefully gliding along with each jump. Alaranta apparently stood its ground, and the thing then allegedly turned around to head back to its ship, with the lumberjack deciding to give chase for some reason. When the creature reached the strange object, it then purportedly began to levitate towards an opening, and Alaranta reached out to grab its leg. It's unclear what would have possessed him to try this, but he certainly regretted it, as the material of the thing's suit was claimed to be incredibly, unbearably hot, searing the lumberjack's hand, causing him to reel away in intense pain. The craft then ascended and disappeared into the night. The two witnesses would later claim that they had experienced disorientation and partial paralysis for an hour after the craft was gone, and the burns on Alaranda's hand would apparently take months to heal. While this may have been an alien or a tall tale, other such suited-up mystery phantoms are a bit harder to categorize. One of the strangest cases of a phantom in some sort of weird suit comes to us from the country of Czechoslovakia during the bloody fighting of World War II. The Nazis relentlessly and brutally moved in to occupy the country between the years of 1938 to 1945, and the oppressed and conquered Czechoslovakian people were forced into hard labor and oppressive factories, producing tanks, guns, and artillery, in horrid conditions, and routinely worked until they fell in exhaustion or death. All through this, the Czech people were subjected to numerous, countless cruelties, offenses, and human rights abuses, and the occupying Nazi forces in Czechoslovakia were quick to deal out death and suffering to those who would dare oppose them, although there were scattered resistance groups that were largely ineffectual. The worst atrocity carried out against the Czechs happened in the aftermath of the assassination of SS leader Heinrich Himmler's deputy and protector of Bohemia and Moravia, Reinhard Heydrich, which resulted in swift and merciless reprisals. The villages of Lydus and Lezeki were razed to the ground. 1,300 were ruthlessly murdered and 10,000 arrested and sentenced to rot or be executed in concentration camps without trial. It was somewhere around this time when the people of Czechoslovakia were lost in despair, without hope, with their villages in ruins, that a curious, enigmatic stranger began to make his presence known. There began to circulate rumors of a mysterious man dressed in some sort of black body armor 
and wearing a face mask that held within it glowing eyes. This shadowy figure was said to have all manner of strange powers, in particular the astounding ability to make superhuman leaps of extraordinary magnitude, with witnesses describing the way he could bound across rooftops over speeding trains, high gates, and even buildings with ease. In at least one report, the black-clad figure was said to be able to leap completely over the Vatava River at its widest point, during which he was said to fly effortlessly through the air like a shuttlecock and to unleash an ear-shattering, unearthly whistling sound. The power to leap great distances with ease led the stranger to being called Perak, or literally Springer or Spring Man with the name deriving from the Czech word pero, meaning spring. Adding to this impressive leaping ability was Perak's alleged phenomenal speed, stamina, and agility, all of which were said to make him impossible to follow or capture. His strength was said to be at superhuman levels, able to toss a full-grown man aside easily or to punch through walls. At first, Perak was seen by the populace as a menacing, almost demonic figure to be feared. Early versions of the story have the mysterious apparition scaring or chasing and terrorizing innocent people or even killing or raping citizens, and people began to avoid going out at night or refusing to go work night shifts at the weapons factories to the extent that it even had a negative impact on the Nazi arms production output. However, this image as a sinister and diabolical boogeyman quickly changed as time went on. Word began to spread that Perak was starting to turn his attention to the ruthless German occupying forces, sabotaging their equipment and leaping from the shadows to slit their throats before bounding away. Although he seemed to mostly prefer stealth and moving in the shadows, there were reports of the Phantom actively engaging German soldiers throwing them about like ragdolls and stabbing them with swords, clubs, or knives, as well as using some sort of ear-piercing sonic attack to stun enemies and make them reel in pain. It was rumored that during these violent encounters, he seemed to be impervious to bullets when fired upon by the Nazis, with some accounts even describing German bullets ricocheting off him to hit other soldiers, and he was able to use his amazing jumping abilities to easily evade pursuit. Perak not only showed great athletic and combat prowess, but also showed great skill with explosives and pyrotechnics, being credited with blowing up German supply lines, vehicles, and even destroying a tank in Grabovka Park. In a few stories, he was seen to use some sort of fireworks as a weapon, spewing flames from devices on his wrists at the enemy. He was also known to allegedly steal secret Nazi plans and documents, such as the plans to an unspecified German secret weapon from the CKD factory in Visakony. There were even those who went so far as to claim that it had, in fact, been Perak who had assassinated Reinhard Heydrich. Throughout all of this one-man struggle against the juggernaut German war machine, Perak was said to leave bold and taunting anti-Nazi graffiti on walls or gates in normally inaccessible places, further strengthening his legend. This growing image of him as a sort of superhero for the Czech people led to Barak 
evolving to be a potent symbol of resistance against the Nazi regime, a savior for the people, and the fantastical stories quickly fanned out across the countryside to embed themselves firmly within the collective consciousness of the oppressed populace. Parak seemed to be everywhere. It got to the point where nearly every problem, mishap, accident, or death the Germans suffered was attributed to the Spring Man of Prague, and he was widely seen as a hero and a ray of hope piercing through the gloom and death of the Nazi occupation. The legend of Parak steadily gained momentum until the end of the war when he seemed to vanish as suddenly and mysteriously as he had appeared, leaving a powerful legend behind. Theories have long swirled as to who or what Parak was. One idea is that he was a disgruntled citizen, an American secret agent or a British paratrooper who had taken matters into his own hands, and that his various abilities and agility could be explained by the vigilante being an acrobat or gymnast who had developed through ingenuity and a variety of ingenious gadgetry to explain his amazing powers, such as real spring-loaded boots, pyrotechnic weapons, stimulants to enhance physical prowess and strength, and some sort of bulletproof body armor. It has even been suggested that the whistling or wailing sound often attributed to Perak could have been from some sort of spring-loaded machinery or even a sonic weapon in itself embedded in his suit for the purpose of startling, frightening, stunning, or disorienting his enemies. These abilities could have subsequently been possibly exaggerated over consequent retellings as the tales took off in people's imagination. Other ideas are that this was an actual specter, ghost, demon, or even an alien. Then, of course, this may all just be an urban legend, a story created to give people hope in the face of the Nazi scourge. It is certainly worth mentioning the clear parallels between the stories of Perak and yet another phantom in a suit in the form of a notorious spring-heeled Jack of the United Kingdom. Beginning in 1837, the industrial suburbs of London, Sheffield, and Liverpool, as well as the Midlands, and even as far away as Scotland, became the stomping grounds for a mysterious figure with the remarkable ability to make enormous leaps via springs attached to his feet, who persistently terrorized residents and was known to make his escape by swiftly bounding away. This specter quickly became known as Spring-Heeled Jack and was depicted as having a frightening appearance, with metal claws attached to his hands and in some accounts glowing red eyes and the ability to shoot blue and white flames from his mouth. Spring-Heeled Jack was far from a noble hero and was mostly seen as a decidedly malevolent force which sowed mayhem and misery wherever he went but it was a very widespread tale all the way up to the early 1900s, and word of this scary entity spread throughout Europe, including the region of Bohemia. Considering this, it seems plausible that, considering the similarities in the apparent use of pyrotechnics or jumping to attack or evade capture, the stories of Spring-Heel Jack may very well have influenced those of Perak. After all, even Perak started off as a menacing, demonic figure, and the striking similarities between the two are obvious. Whatever the case may be, both Parak and Spring-Heel Jack 
remain compelling mysteries that have never been adequately solved. In the years after World War II, there were some strange encounters with what seemed to have been a person or people in some sort of flying mechanized suit. In early 1948, a 61-year-old witness named Bernice Sakowski claimed that she had been out in the yard of her home in Chalice, Washington at around 3 p.m. when some neighborhood children began looking up at the sky and chattering away about a flying man up in the sky. It was at this point that Zykowski allegedly heard an odd noise from above that sounded like a sizzling and whizzing, and when she looked up, she could see something very odd indeed hovering up over a nearby barn around 20 feet in the air. The witness insisted that what she saw looked like a man wearing a pair of long silver wings fastened to his shoulders with some sort of strap rig and which he seemed to control with some sort of high-tech panel attached to his chest. The mysterious man with his bizarre flying suit apparently then performed some aerial acrobatics, ascended into the air, and flew off into the distance in an upright posture. At no point could the witness discern any obvious source of propulsion, such as a jetpack or propeller, and the contraption the man wore seemed to be mostly silent except for that odd whizzing sound. The whole sight was seen by Zykowski and several other witnesses, all of whom were dumbfounded. Was this some sort of flying gadget crafted by a mad genius? Later that same year, in April of 1948, this mysterious figure was purportedly seen again in the same general vicinity. This time, he was apparently with friends. The two witnesses, laundry workers Viola Johnson and James Pittman, claimed that they saw three men in flying suits making circles over the city at a height of around 250 feet. Johnson would say of the spectacle, they looked like three men in flying suits flying through the air. They wore dark, drab flying suits, and as far as I can judge, I'm not very good at judging distance, they were 250 feet high, circling the city. They were going at about the same speed as a freight train and had some kind of apparatus on their sides which looked like guns but I know it couldn't have been guns. I couldn't see any propellers or any motors tied on them, but I could hear motors which sounded like airplane motors, only not so loud. When they first came into sight, I thought they looked like gulls, but as they got closed, I could see plainly that they were men. I couldn't make out their arms, but I could see their feet dangling down, and, and they kept moving their heads like they were looking around. I couldn't tell if they had goggles on, but their heads looked like they had helmets on. I couldn't see their faces. The two witnesses' story was somewhat corroborated when several local people later recalled hearing strange sounds in the sky at around the time of the sighting. Who were these flying men, and where did they get those amazing suits? Were there some eccentric inventors who had come up with a new way of flight? If so, whatever happened to this incredible invention? Or was it something else, perhaps time travelers or visitors from another parallel dimension? Could it have all just been a hoax or tall tale? It's hard to say. Most recently, the Swiss town of Mals was haunted by some sort of humanoid phantom between the years of 2003 and 2013, which was said to stalk through the nearby woodlands. The enigmatic figure was typically described as being around six or seven feet tall and dressed in some sort of boiler suit, 
as well as a gas mask that covered the entire head, a military-style cape and rugged military boots. Although quite frightening to those who encountered the inscrutable entity lumbering through the woods, there have been sightings that seem to suggest it's not malevolent but still unsettling nevertheless, as was the case of a local woman who saw the being wandering about while clutching a bunch of flowers. Another local named Marianne Desclos saw the phantom as well, and she would say of the sight, it was a rainy Sunday, he had a cap, a dark cloak, and his gas mask. What could possibly be going through his head? I don't know, but it was unforgettable and unpleasant. I hope I don't run into him again. The thing has come to be known as Laloyon, as well as the Ghost de Balls, and things got even odder still when an amateur photographer claimed to have captured a photo of it. The photo would be published in the newspaper Le Matin, and although it has been widely criticized as being a hoax, the photographer insists that it is all real. He would say of his encounter, I approached him up to a dozen meters away. He had a military cape, boots, and an army gas mask, an antique type, I think. He measured more than 1.9 meters. He stared at me, then turned his back on me and left in silence. Adding some more mystery and intrigue to this strange figure was the discovery of what appeared to be the suit, gas mask, and cloak laid out in the forest, accompanied by a cryptic note which refers to the risk of a hunt for the beast, and allegedly includes the figure's insistence that he is a harmless being and concerned that Le Matin had made his existence known and forced him to abandon his plight, whatever that was. According to one article on the matter, written in a bulletin in Sales, the letter seemed to be some sort of suicide note, and it says of the contents, the risk of a hunt for the beast became too great. The note expressed Leloyan's concerns that the recent exposure would lead to further attention, which forced the person under the clothes to abandon the walks, which the letter referred to as happiness therapy. Whatever it all means, the mysterious intruder has not been seen since, leading one to wonder what it all means. Who was Leloyan? Was this just some maniac running around in his weird getup? Or was this something more? What did that last note even mean? And was it even from the man himself? As with many of the cases here, it all remains unsolved. In the end, with all of these cases, we are left to wonder who or what these phantom figures were, where they came from, what they wanted, and where they got those wonderful toys. Be it humans messing around with new tech, aliens, interdimensional interlopers, or just plain hoaxes, these are decidedly unique accounts at the very least. Are they ghosts? Demons? Aliens? Mad scientists? Or what? Whatever they are, they can safely be said to inhabit their own corner of the world of the weird. Up next, a hundred years ago, the Spanish influenza epidemic ripped through the United States, with fatalities reaching as high as a thousand per week. We'll look at what happened. And a young girl dealing with the trauma of her parents getting a divorce is traumatized even more when staying at a friend's house that appears to be haunted. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing, 
that what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose. That's 120 people per day, 5 people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour. One person dying from alcohol abuse every six minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. The Spanish influenza epidemic followed World War I which had been considered the war to end all wars, when America joined the fight in 1917. The first outbreak of what became known as the Spanish Flu occurred in Haskell County, Kansas in January 1918, just nine months after the United States had declared war on Germany. It spread to other bases and then across the Atlantic to Europe with the American soldiers that entered the fight. Although the first cases of the disease were discovered in the United States and the rest of Europe long before getting to Spain, the epidemic received its nickname of Spanish Flu because Spain, a neutral country in World War I, had no special wartime censorship for news about the disease and the accompanying death toll. Since it received reliable press coverage in Spain, people got the false impression that Spain was the most, if not the only, affected country. The illness killed thousands in Europe before returning home to America with the returning troops. The second wave of the 1918 pandemic was much deadlier than the first. The first wave had resembled typical flu epidemics. Those most at risk were the sick and elderly, while younger, healthier people recovered easily. But in August, when the second wave swept across the United States, the virus had mutated to a much deadlier form. Thousands died. The new wave of the disease was spread by soldiers returning from Europe, and for Americans, the flu turned out to be more devastating than the war that accompanied it. By the fall of 1918, the Surgeon General of the Army reported that the disease had exploded in port cities where soldiers were entering the United States from overseas. In the early stages of the illness, the epidemic had been largely ignored by the public health departments and was regarded as merely a minor outbreak. Late in the year, though, as port cities and naval bases began to report large numbers of illnesses and death, the public began to realize something was very wrong. However, little was done to curb the spread of the virus. Doctors warned local health departments to quarantine the sick and to restrict attendance at large public gatherings. 
However, most towns, in the grip of patriotic fervor, resisted the advice and held rallies and parades for returning soldiers. In Philadelphia, a massive Liberty Loan parade was held in October, despite the pleas of some medical officials to cancel it. The city paid a horrible price for continuing with the event, as fatalities soon approached 1,000 per week. In the days and weeks that followed, the disease began to spread to the interior parts of the country. The Navy carried in the flu from coast to coast on their troop ships, and the Army did the same via the railways. Soldiers packed into tight quarters on the trains guaranteed the rapid spread of respiratory illnesses, and when they arrived in the various stations, they passed the flu on to all who came into contact with them. Large public gatherings in support of the war, such as parades, bond rallies, and loan drives brought masses of people together and they quickly spread the flu even further. The people simply did not appreciate the amount of danger they were in, and they ignored orders calling for the closure of schools, churches, theaters, and other public meeting places. Most cities refused to halt their public transportation services until hundreds of transit authority workers fell ill and forced them to do so. Soon, those who collected the dead and interred them found themselves overwhelmed in some cities. The accumulation of corpses then served to create secondary epidemics, making the larger cities the hardest hit by the flu. As the death toll mounted around the country, the social fabric of many communities began to unravel. In San Francisco, schools were closed for six weeks. In Philadelphia, bodies were stacked like cordwood and went uncollected. The police were forced to remove bodies from homes and families had to dig graves for their loved ones, as gravediggers refused to work. Factories closed due to high absence rates. The people's indifference to the flu directly led to the rapid and deadly spread of the disease. Most considered the flu as merely a side note to the terrible war, and in those days, epidemics of one sort or another were a common part of life. Most people had already lived through an epidemic of some sort, although usually on a much smaller scale. Influenza moved quickly. It arrived in a town, flourished for a time, and then left before most people had the opportunity to realize how great the danger was. Also, the flu did not always kill, and when it did, it killed quickly, especially young adults. Normally, the healthiest of age groups, individuals in their 20s, had the highest rate of mortality from the Spanish flu. Nearly one-fourth of all Americans caught the flu between the fall of 1918 and the late winter of 1919. Even if sufficient numbers of doctors had been available, they could have done little to intercede. No flu vaccines existed at the time, and caregivers could do little but encourage patients to drink plenty of fluids, hand out aspirin, and keep the dying comfortable. Emergency Red Cross hospitals were set up from coast to coast, but doctors and nurses were scarce, as the war effort had taken many of them into the military and to France. Despite frantic appeals, calls for more nurses went unanswered. In many cases, entire families were incapacitated with illness, unaided by doctors and avoided by their neighbors who refused to enter their homes that had influenza signs nailed to the front door. 
some cities required people to wear surgical masks, which were actually ineffective to the microscopic virus. Because death rates were highest among people in their 20s, many of whom were parents, the flu produced thousands of young orphans around the country. After Germany surrendered, President Wilson went to France as the head of the American delegation for the peace negotiations held at Versailles. In April 1919, the president himself contracted the flu, which came on very suddenly. He later recalled that night was one of the worst through which I have ever passed. Prior to getting sick, Wilson had resisted the Allies' demands to punish Germany, but even before he was fully recovered, he changed his mind and went along with the Allied position, including the imposition of expensive financial reparations on Germany. It's unknown just how much effect the flu had on Wilson's reversal, but some believe that it may have contributed to his debilitating stroke the following September, an event that clouded his judgment when the Senate considered the ratification of the Versailles Treaty. The flu may or may not have had an effect on world politics, but it's certain that it had an impact on the social history of the United States, as well as the role of medical research in years to come. The epidemic was slowly brought under control and almost seemed to vanish as a few more months passed. By then, however, the damage was done. Millions were dead around the world. Entire families wiped out. Towns had been laid waste and never recovered. And American history had been altered in a way that had never happened before. And all because of the flu. My parents got a divorce when I was going into fourth grade, so we, my mom and two sisters, I'm a triplet, move into a different house and change schools. In middle school, I slept over at a friend's house who said that her house was haunted by two young kids and an older man. Her family did research on the history of the house. I remember feeling very on edge when I was there. I thought it was just my mind overreacting. Ever since then, when I came back to my house, I felt the same sense of being watched. At first, it was footsteps. I thought I was crazy. I saw a brush float in the air, then drop in my bedroom. A cup move on a desk while I'm sitting there. There were certain things that didn't scare me. Other times, I would be overwhelmed with a sense of fear that I couldn't breathe. It happened mostly in my bathroom, but I could sense it randomly all over the house. I couldn't talk to anyone about this because I wasn't close with my family and everyone was going through a hard time with the divorce. I used to hear mumbled voices at night. I made myself think it was my sisters late at night being annoying, talking to each other from their own room across the hall. It doesn't even make sense as to why they would do that, but I vividly remember a few nights where I would yell their names and tell them to be quiet. About a year after we all moved out, about the beginning of high school, I told my mom and one of my sisters at dinner about my experiences, and when I got to the part about hearing the voices, my sister said that she heard it too and would yell at me and our other sister to be quiet. My mom said she remembers us yelling at each other to be quiet. My mom's room was in the basement. Me and my sisters had our own rooms all upstairs on the same level, close to each other. I don't understand how we never heard each other yell to be quiet. 
My mom got cancer when I was in seventh grade. She's okay now, thank God. I was scared every night. I've heard three knocks on my bathroom door while I was showering, and when I got out to see who was there, I saw my family was all watching TV downstairs. I even came downstairs in a towel to ask who knocked. When I lived in that house, I grew a very, very, very intense fear of the noise the water the bathtub made when I turned it on. I can't even describe it. It was like the noise was a trigger for the fear. One of the scariest feelings I ever felt was when I was about to fall asleep one night and started to smell bonfire smoke. I looked outside, but no fires. It was way too strong for it to come from outside anyway, especially with my windows being shut. The fear that came over my entire body while I was smelling it was awful. I hid under my covers, sweating until I fell asleep. One time I ran into the laundry room and my eyes were looking down as I stepped into the room I saw shadowy feet about two feet in front of me, and I looked up and saw a very tall, shadowy figure, a male, and I ran. No details on the figure, just a shadow that wasn't on the wall. I don't even remember what I did after I saw that. My insomnia started back then, and I'm still very scared of the dark. I have an overwhelming fear of it, and I'm 19. These are just the main events that stick out. I've had a few friends that had experiences in the old house, too. Within the last month, I started dating a guy who is the most amazing, spiritual, respectful person I've ever met. He knows I lived in a haunted house and that I don't like talking about it because I still get scared thinking about it. He never has asked questions. Two nights ago, I came to his house to sleep over. I was already stressed out just from day-to-day -day life, but I didn't talk about how I felt. I've struggled with depression and anxiety since my parents got a divorce. We fell asleep early, around 11 p.m. I had a dream that my family and friends were all staying at a beach house. In the dream, I knew I wasn't myself. It felt odd. It was just someone's perspective going through a hallway and turned right into a bedroom and saw one of my sisters on her bed looking down at her phone. She didn't look up, as if she didn't know that anybody was there. That was the end of the dream, and I wake up in sleep paralysis. I told this sister about all of this, and she doesn't think any of it's real. I know I'm in sleep paralysis because I experienced it when I was four years old and later on in life realized what happened because I saw something online. I researched about it and heard of these shadow people that can manifest in sleep paralysis. Anyway, I wake up in sleep paralysis, but I'm not in my boyfriend's room. I'm in the beach house bedroom where me and my boyfriend are sleeping. I could physically feel my leg still under his. I can't move to see him, though. My eyes are faced towards a lit-up door, and a shadow figure quickly comes in. At first, it's the size of the door but as it comes into the corner of the room, it rises to the height of the ceiling. At the same time it rises, I hear an intense, loud, white noise in my ears and a very high-pitched ringing sound. The same time the shadow grew and the sound started, my eyesight also started glitching. It was as if a computer program was messing up and glitching out, but this was in my head. The noise was coming from in my head, in my ears. I shut my eyes, 
and I know what's going on because I've read about it. I still am panicking and start trying to flail my body around to wake up my boyfriend and he'll know that I'm having some sort of nightmare. As I think I'm about to wake him up, I hear the sink running in the bathroom and I think to myself, he's in the bathroom, he's not going to be able to help me. And as that thought ended, I woke up from sleep paralysis next to my boyfriend, asleep with my leg under his. I still heard a loud sound in my ear as if I just sat next to a helicopter or something. I woke him up because I was scared. I told him I had just had the worst sleep paralysis and right before I even told him what happened, he said, wait, I think I had sleep paralysis. I asked what he meant, but he quickly shrugged it off and said, never mind. About 20 minutes later, I calmed down a little bit and realized I'm naked. I woke up with my clothes off. Even my boyfriend said he remembers me having clothes on going to bed. I've woken up naked before when I know I had clothes on when I fell asleep. I never thought anything of it until now. Now I'm not sure what to think. I was very shook up the rest of the day. I even screamed when a loud truck drove past my car. My boyfriend could see how much this hurt me and made an appointment for that day to go to a crystal healer. Our way there, he told me that last night at 4 a.m., two hours before I woke up with sleep paralysis, he woke up and noticed that he had peed his pants. He was embarrassed to tell me. I think he's scared. I can see in his eyes he sometimes believes me, but he also doesn't want to think it's real. I don't know how much he believes me. This is hurting our relationship. I told my mom, and she knows I wouldn't make this up. I feel a little better after meeting with the lady at the apothecary, but I'm still on edge. I've seen two white orbs before, so I know there's something always protecting me. One when I was four, and another within the last six months. When Weird Darkness Returns Joan Crawford's daughter exposed her sadistic behavior but how truthful were her accusations? And a man starts to dig a swimming pool in his backyard and unearths numerous human corpses. The resulting story is so incredible that it inspired the film Grave Secrets. We'll look at the true story behind the Black Hope horror. These stories are up next. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life, but if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it, and if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Helpline is there for you right now, no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you, but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. They can help you find a way off that dark path you're on in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Joan Crawford was one of the biggest American movie stars of all time. But her daughter Christina Crawford claimed that the glamorous facade hid a cruel and sadistic personality. So where does the truth lie? Joan Crawford's New York Times obituary stated that Miss Crawford was a quintessential superstar, an epitome of timeless glamour who personified for decades the dreams and disappointments of American women. Indeed, during her nearly five-decade career, Joan Crawford starred in some of the most widely praised films of her time. She received an Academy Award for Best Actress in a Leading Role in 1946 for her portrayal as a hard-working mother trying to provide for an ungrateful daughter in the movie Mildred Pierce. Thirty years later, Christina Crawford revealed how Joan's life had imitated art in ways her legions of fans could never have envisioned. Christina Crawford was the eldest of Joan's adopted children. Unable to have any children of her own, the actress adopted Christina in 1939, followed by Christopher in 1943, and then two twin daughters, Catherine and Cynthia, in 1947. Joan had attempted to adopt a child prior to Christina, but he was reclaimed by his birth mother. Although five children saved from abandonment and brought in by one of the world's biggest actresses may have seemed like a real-life fairy tale, Christina Crawford claimed it was nothing less than a nightmare. In Christina Crawford's 1978 autobiography, Mommy Dearest, which would later be turned into a film starring Faye Dunaway, Christina revealed that far from being a generous and caring maternal figure, Joan was an alcoholic who physically and emotionally abused her adopted children. Christina described how she and Christopher bore the brunt of the abuse, with Christopher being strapped down into his bed with a harness each night so that he could not get up to go to the bathroom. In one chapter of the book, which would become the most famous scene in the movie, Christina recalled how Joan went into a blind rage after discovering a forbidden wire hanger in her daughter's closet one night. The Oscar-winning actress ripped the clothes off their hangers and flung them all onto the floor before seizing Christina by the hair. Christina Crawford recalled how with one hand she pulled me by the hair and with the other she cuffed my ears until they rang, all the while screaming, no wire hangers, before proceeding to destroy Christina's part of the room and then ordering her to clean up your mess. The autobiography became an immediate bestseller, and No More Wire Hangers has since been a pop culture staple. No Wire Hangers! What's Wire Hangers doing in this closet when I told you no Wire Hangers ever? Till I'm half dead, and I hear people saying she's getting old. What do I get? A daughter! Who cares as much about the beautiful dresses I'd give her as she cares about me? What's wire hangers doing in this closet? Answer me! For many people, Joan Crawford will forever be associated as a deranged mother instead of a sophisticated star. The book and film became so popular that the stories of Joan Crawford's cruelty were in some ways accepted as fact, but many of the people closest to her were quick to jump to her defense 
and upend the stories of Christina Crawford. One of Joan Crawford's staunchest defenders against the claims of Christina Crawford was actually her biggest rival, Betty Davis. The famous rivalry was often capitalized on for classic movie roles like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which featured Crawford and Davis as bickering sisters. But even Davis, who was not Miss Crawford's biggest fan, dismissed Christina Crawford's expose. She said that the book was trash and declared it was a terrible, terrible thing for Christina to have done to someone who saved you from the orphanage foster homes. Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Joan's former husband and movie star in his own right, also wholeheartedly dismissed Christina's accusations by stating that Joan beating her children would not only have been out of character, but she only used covered padded hangers. It wasn't only other Hollywood stars who came to Joan's defense, but also her other children. Catherine and Cynthia, Joan's adopted twin daughters, were heartbroken about their adopted sister's portrayal of their mother. Catherine stated that Christina lived in her own reality and that our mommy was the best mother anyone ever had. Catherine remembers Joan as an affectionate and caring mother who once rushed off a set in the middle of filming upon getting a call from Catherine's school that she had broken her wrist on the playground. Joan drove her daughter to the doctor herself, still in full movie makeup, a far cry from Dunaway's portrayal of a violent and vain star. Joan herself never read the biography of Christina Crawford, as it was published after she died, although she knew Christina had been writing it. A year before her death, in 1976, she rewrote her will to exclude both Christina and Christopher for reasons which are well known to them. In 1982, Sam and Judith Haney were one of several couples who purchased homes in the Newport area of Houston, Texas. A year later, when Sam went about having a swimming pool dug in his backyard, an elderly man showed up at his door to report that he was about to dig up human remains. The reason he knew the remains were there was because he had buried them years before when the land was still a cemetery. Proceeding to dig, it was not long before Sam came upon two bodies just where the old man said they were. There were two pine boxes, each with the indentation of a skeletal form. Sam immediately called the sheriff and county coroner who conducted an official exhumation. Most of the bones had turned to powder, but 25 fragments were found, some so brittle that they disintegrated when touched two wedding rings were discovered on the frail fingers of the exposed skeleton. The Haneys tried to determine the identity of the skeletons. They contacted longtime resident Jasper Norton, who told them that he had dug several graves in the area when he was a teenager. The Haneys' home and several other homes had been built on top of an African-American cemetery called Black Hope. The deceased were mainly former slaves. The last burial occurred at the cemetery in 1939. Construction crews destroyed all traces of it during the building of the subdivision. Local research revealed the remains were Betty and Charlie Thomas. They'd been born into slavery and freed during the Civil War. They died in the 1930s. Plagued by guilt for digging up their graves, the Haneys decided to rebury the couple. 
Despite this, the dead would not rest. One night, Judith Haney discovered her clock glowing and sparking. When she checked, the clock was unplugged. On another night, Sam was working the night shift, so Judith was alone. After getting a shower, she heard her sliding door open and close. Then she heard someone say, what are you doing? She assumed it was Sam, but he was not there. The next morning, she went to get her red shoes, but they were not in her closet. Sam helped her look throughout the entire house, but they could not find the shoes. Inexplicably, they turned up again, outside, over Betty and Charlie's grave. They later learned that same day was Betty's birthday. Sam believes this was Charlie giving his wife a birthday present. The Haneys were not the only ones that experienced supernatural phenomenon. A dozen of their neighbors also reported lights, televisions, and water faucets turning on and off. Many heard unearthly sounds and saw supernatural apparitions. Ben and Jean Williams moved into the same neighborhood around the same time as the Haneys. Shortly after moving in, Jean noticed that her plants kept dying. Reported that near their flower beds, sinkholes appeared in the unmistakable shape of a coffin. They would fill them in, only to have them reappear a few days later. The Williams also noticed strange markings on a tree near the sinkholes. An arrow pointed towards the ground. Beneath it were two horizontal slash marks. A longtime resident told the couple that he had marked the tree. He said that he had made the markings because of his two sisters who were buried beneath it. The Williams felt guilty for practically desecrating their graves. The Williams soon began experiencing supernatural phenomena. Random shadows slid along the walls accompanied by whispers and a putrid smell. Their granddaughter Carly, who lived with them, reported that during the blazing heat of summer, she would encounter bone-chilling pockets of ice-cold air. It would be very, very chilly, she said, and you'd have this feeling of foreboding or just, you know, like something wasn't right. Anywhere in the house, you'd have a feeling that you were not alone. Somebody was watching you. It terrified me to be in the house by myself." Carly recalled other strange incidents in the home. The toilets used to flush on their own, she said. As the water went down, I could hear what was almost like conversations. You could hear people murmuring to themselves. It was a presence or a spirit or something there, something that wanted to be heard, wanted me to know that it was there. Jean recalled another incident when she and Carly were about to take a nap. They heard the sound of the back door opening and closing. They heard the sounds of footsteps walking towards them. However, no one was there. Jean added, I absolutely believe that all of these things happened to us because we were on the graveyard and that we were simply going to be tormented until we left there. She wanted to leave, but Ben felt that they had to stay and fight it. He described encountering two ghostly figures in his home as he came home from the graveyard shift. They went straight into the den and headed down the hall towards the bedroom. He entered the bedroom and saw one of the figures standing above Jean. Fearing for her safety, he jumped onto the bed and the figure vanished. However, the Williams' problems were far from over. Within months, six of their close relatives were diagnosed with cancer. Three of them died. They felt that the illnesses were caused by the spirits of the homes. 
Meanwhile, the Haneys decided to sue the developers for not disclosing that their home was built over a cemetery. A jury awarded them $142,400 for mental anguish. However, in a devastating reversal, the judge ruled that the developer was not responsible. The verdict was thrown out, and the Haneys were ordered to pay $50,000 in court costs. They ended up having to file for bankruptcy. The Williams followed with legal action, but the developers wanted proof that the cemetery had even existed. Jean started digging up her backyard for remains. However, she soon fell ill, so her daughter Tina volunteered to finish the job. After about half an hour, Tina began to feel dizzy. She laid down on the couch but continued to feel worse. Ben called 911 and Tina was rushed to the hospital. She had suffered a massive heart attack. Tragically, she would die two days later. She was only 30 years old. Jean believed her death was caused by supernatural forces. The Williams ended up losing their entire investment and escaped to Montana, later moving back to another neighborhood in Texas. However, back in their old neighborhood, none of the current residents have reported any paranormal activity. No one has ever been able to explain what happened to the Williams or the Haneys. Research shows that many of the bodies were buried by Jasper Norton. He told the Haneys that their home and a dozen others were built at Black Hope. The deceased were mainly former slaves, with the last burial in 1939, and as many as 60 people were interred there in paupers' graves. The case inspired the book The Black Hope Horror by Ben and Jean Williams, and later the 1992 movie Grave Secrets. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And as mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this month I'm asking you to help raise as much money as possible for depression and suicide prevention. And you can give right now by clicking on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. And as of recording this episode, we did receive another donation since I started, so we're currently at $1,324 towards our goal of $2,000. We only have 12 days left for this fundraiser, so please give now while you're thinking about it. Click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And congratulations to Jessifer Sherman. She's this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner and is receiving a free Weird Darkness smartphone cover. Next week's winner gets a free Weird Darkness crewneck sweatshirt. If you want to win, follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it on your social media, text, email, any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com, and if you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment, leave a rating and review. I might read your comment here in the podcast. April D. said, This podcast is amazing. 
I like the variety of stories and the fact that there are many I've never heard. I listen to and watch a lot of paranormal shows and I'm thrilled that I'm hearing so many new stories. I listen on the way to and from work and it's a super spooky fun way to spend my commute time. Thanks so much for this amazing podcast. And then one of my patrons left me a message saying, Hi Darren, I just want to thank you for the great job and all the effort you're putting into this excellent podcast. You really saved my days at work as a welder. You do such a great work. I became a patron not for all the extra goodies but to show my gratitude to the best podcast out there. I'm not religious in any way but keep the light at the end because in some way it comforts. Have a great time and looking forward to seeing you at Halloween on YouTube. Best wishes, Frederick. Thanks for the kind comments, weirdos. The following stories in this episode are purported to be true and you can find links in the show notes. The epidemic that brought America to its knees was written by Troy Taylor. Haunted House, Sleep Paralysis, and Shadow People was written by Rachel Grace. The Claims of Christina Crawford was written by Gina DeMuro. Black Hope Horror was posted at unsolvedmysteries.wikia.com. And Armored Phantoms was written by Brent Swanser. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 34, verses 18 and 19. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. I-R-S. Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The I-R-S does not give up. Until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the I-R-S. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800 417 9743. That's 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743.